Welcome back, listeners, to the third episode of Popcorn Talk, the summer edition, summer 2020 edition. Yeah, 2020. Um, not a very good year, obviously. Um, I hope you have enjoyed the last couple episodes that we did. We did. I'm so used to saying we. It's really just me. Hi, I'm Logan Roschke, if you don't know me. I was the managing editor for the Daily Eastern News, and now I'm the podcast editor and the senior designer for the Daily Eastern News. And I also work at HitMix, and like that's where I get my recording background and everything, but I'm the only person that's really doing this podcast over the summer, because we have limited staff, and 2020 has been awful. So, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much a solo job for now. So, today we're going to be talking about Pan's Labyrinth. I'm so excited to be talking about this with you guys. This is probably... My top ten list of movies, like my favorite movies, always changes depending on my mood and the year, the month, et cetera, et cetera. But Pan's Labyrinth has always managed to just stay in the top 10. It's, it's just a fantastic movie all around. So let's dive right into it. Guillermo del Toro's 2006 historical fantasy film, Pan's Labyrinth, is the epitome of quality foreign film. Del Toro combines a complex historical conflict with fairy tales, reminiscent of the, t- of the fables we read as children. Who knew the grittiest and most horrific of real-life history combined with fantastical, excuse me, fantastical fiction could go together like peanut butter and jelly? Well, Guillermo del Toro is, in my book anyway, a connoisseur when it comes to these kinds of things, so I guess genius ideas come from geniuses. Who's surprised? So I did say that this was a foreign film. It's all in Spanish. And if you're the kind of person who is afraid of foreign films or you just really, it's not your thing. Like you, you don't like reading subtitles. Trust me, you will get over it within five minutes. It is a fantastic movie. It's a great movie to also, it's like a good gateway movie. If you are interested in diving into foreign films, this is like up there. This is very, very good to start out. So let's dive into the synopsis of Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth may have fairies, talking fawns, a giant frog, and a pale man who has eyes on his hands and gobbles up children, but they're all just as real to Ophelia as the oppressive Franco-fascists are to Spain. The beginning of the film takes place in 1944 during World War II, several years after the Spanish Civil War. A mysterious, overgrown labyrinth beckons to be explored nearby the military campsite that Yanofelia, played by Ivana Baquero, stays at with her mother, who was played by Ariadna Gil. Ophelia's mother is married to phalangist Cap- excuse me, Captain Vidal, whose purpose is to eliminate the Spanish Maquis fighting against the Francoists. Ophelia, like any child would be, is more interested in exploring the labyrinth than getting cozy with her brutal stepfather and blind-sided mother. As the story progresses, audiences witness two separate stories unfolding. The first details the lengths Captain Vidal will go to ensure his unborn son is born healthy, even if it means harming or murdering others around him. The second shows Ophelia's journey from the real world to fantasy worlds via the labyrinth portal and the two-edged fawn, or pan, who guards it. Ophelia has trials to endure if she wants to reach the underworld and claim her spot as Princess Moana. The fawn, played by Doug Jones, tells her she must collect keys from a fat frog and a 
child-hungry pale man to unlock her destiny, and if she wishes to save her mother from, a, from dying as a result of childbirth complications, she must care for a mandrake root as part of some otherworldly ritual. So yes, it's very strange, but... It is so worth checking out, you guys. I love this movie so much. I'm so happy I'm talking about it with you all. So why should you check it out? Well, here's what drives the success of Pan's Labyrinth. The juxtaposed yet interwoven elements that are crucial to tell the film's sometimes complex but often simple story. It explains the brutality of the Franco-fascists after the Spanish Civil War and uses fanciful state fanciful fairy tales excuse me a lot of alliteration here <laughs> fanciful fairy tale emblems to illustrate their mutually symbiotic relationship within the film there are some subtle symbolic images that don't hit you at first but after a second third or even fourth watch you're taken aback by how visceral they are and trust me this is one of those movies that the more you watch it, the more beneficial it is to you because you noticed imagery, symbolic things, intertextuality that it wouldn't normally realize. I've seen this movie probably a dozen times over my life, and I'm learning new things about it every day. I'm noticing new things about it every time I watch. So a quick example of what I'm talking about here is the pile of shoes in the dining hall of the Pale Man. It explains two very different stories. The first is that the shoes belong to the children he's eaten, of course, but the shoes also illustrate a second story viewers may not catch the first time. Those shoes are also symbolic of the shoes taken from Jews who were sent away to concentration camps to meet their unjust fates. All right, so now we're going to get into the symbolism and intertextuality. So symbolism is, if you guys don't know, it is... A meaning that an emblem or a image of some sort conveys through an understanding meaning that is passed on just in our human educations with one another. So like the cross is the symbol of Christianity, for instance. The Valentine's Day heart is a symbol of love. And intertextuality is a little bit different. It entails the relationships that different stories and things of that nature have between different texts um, and like similarities and differences. And a lot of people will utilize intertextuality to make light of a, like a past literature um, or a past piece of literature. I mean, um, it, it's almost like references sometimes, but it's, it's usually done between different texts or like different pieces of literature, but it can be also, done in cinema for instance so there's a bit of that in this movie um there's a lot of symbolism and intertextuality but before we continue i do want to tell you that there are going to be some spoilers this is a spoiler warning if you haven't watched the movie already i hope i've given you enough evidence to prove that this is definitely worth your while it is fantastic it's probably my favorite foreign film i've ever seen um it's what got me hooked on guillermo del toro um, I think the man is an absolute genius and an artist when it comes to cinema, especially and visual storytelling. Really, he is a master. So check him out. Check Pan's Labyrinth out. It's amazing. If you haven't seen it, leave. All right. Are you gone? Perfect. We're going to get into some detailed analysis for those who actually have seen it. So Ophelia in the movie and Ophelia in William Shakespeare's play Hamlet are kind of similar. 
Hamlet's, excuse me, Hamlet's Ophelia eventually meets her demise after she goes mad. Her death has been cited as one of the most poignant poetic deaths in all of literature. There are obviously parallels between the two Ophelia, between the two Ophelia and Ophelia. Both of them die, but their deaths could have been avoided. Um, and a lot of people also say like Ophelia in Shakespeare's play Hamlet could have avoided her death by herself. She could have just taken a different path. She could have avoided it. It was kind of her doing indirectly. And some people can say the same thing for Ophelia. Ophelia. It was avoidable, even though she was just going on her childhood instincts to explore interesting things. She could have avoided it. They both meet grim demises in the end, and both deaths are also great tragedies, met with great mourning thereafter. And then, of course, the other parallel is that they have the same name, only it's spelled differently. So it's pretty telling that there's some kind of correlation there. Another smaller example of like intertextuality is portrayed in Ophelia's dress. So the dress Ophelia wears is similar to the one Alice from Alice in Wonderland wears during her phantasmagorical adventures in Wonderland. So something to note is that the dress that Ophelia's mother makes for her in Pan's Labyrinth eventually gets ruined and dirty. This could be foreshadowing, oh, well things are going to get messy for Ophelia then, you know, if her dress is going to get this dirty and disgusting, she's going to meet some terrible fate. So that's also another way you can look at that whole thing. And yet another example is the relationship between the pale man and the Greek mythological Titan Cronus or the Romanized version Saturn. All right. So this one is a little bit more complicated and it's going to take a little bit more explaining, but I promise you, I have a point here. Okay, so the painting that comes to my mind, if we're talking about the Titan Cronus or um, the Romanized version, Saturn, eating his children, is, of course, Francisco Goya's Saturn devouring his son painting. Goya was mostly a romantic artist, and this painting is vastly different compared to his other works. Unlike his usual beautiful, realistic strokes, this painting features a quote, Titan, who looks more like a hermit, brazenly fearful and anxious. You can see it in his desperate eyes and face. He's afraid of losing power, so he absorbs it by eating his children. So you might be wondering, okay, what does this painting have to do with the movie? This is very similar to the pale man's fate, or excuse me, the pale man's feast of children. And many compare the pale man to Adolf Hitler. Similar to how Hitler massacred innocents by the millions, the pale man feasts on children for sustenance. So that's another kind of symbolic slash, really, that's symbolism and intertextuality both, I think. Another conclusion you could draw from these two very different pieces of literature, pieces of culture, pieces of art, and somehow they're intertwined. And this is why... Del Toro is just an absolute genius. This is stuff that takes lots and lots of planning. It comes from the mind of, of a brilliant man, a brilliant woman, a brilliant person. This is brilliant stuff. It's beautiful. And again, like I said, this is not stuff you're going to find on your first watch. This is stuff that you would have to study to really understand. 
um, or really you'd have to watch this multiple times, have some history of like film studies or um, a background of art history. Really, it's it, it's just so much preparation and time that he took, and it he just it all culminates into this absolutely beautiful work of art. This movie, Pan's Labyrinth, it's fantastic, and I'm sure that there are dozens of other parallels and intertextuality and symbolism examples that you can find in this film that just go to further illustrate how fantastic this film is and how much work and effort and thought went into this. So there's one other thing I wanted to mention um, when it came to me explaining why I think this movie is certainly worth checking out. So this is my personal experience with the film. This movie, Pan's Labyrinth, introduced me to foreign film. I've seen... I haven't seen, like, millions of foreign films, but I've seen a good amount to understand that, you know, different cultures portray different things, obviously, uh, when it comes to cinema and cinematic storytelling. And in a lot of ways, you see a lot of the same stuff with American film. Uh, A lot of ideas get recycled. You see a lot of sequels or prequels. So you see similar ideas branching off of one idea. And if you're not seeing that, you're seeing a lot of repeated ideas just in different forms. So people get tired of American film, honestly, and American visual storytelling. It's pretty understandable. It's not hard to see why. But you don't really see those same things when it comes to foreign film. There's just this whole other giant vast ocean of cinema that people either don't know about because they've never tried it or they just don't want to try it because they don't like to read subtitles (laughs) which to be frank I I mean I get it I get it I do but it's something that goes away after once you find a foreign film that you really love and appreciate and you're really into it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that there are words on the screen. You will read them and you will be fine. I do understand that people who have trouble reading subtitles or can't read subtitles, unfortunately, don't have the same privilege, but they can watch the dubbed version. So it, it's not as good as the original. I, I think the original is usually always better no matter what, but it's a close second. So this movie introduced me to foreign film and foreign film introduced me to like I said this ocean of ideas and this ocean of happiness that I got from foreign cinema and it's funny because (laughs) my mom used to I don't remember what channel she said it was but um she used to watch like foreign movies and maybe soap operas on this one tv channel that she used to have and she would always say the foreign films are so much better than the american films and when i was a kid i didn't really think much of this i was just like okay this isn't a language that i can't comprehend so i'm not into it and then one day she sat me down and said like hey we're gonna watch pan's labyrinth and i'm like but this is like in spanish and i don't remember exactly how she got me to watch it because i think that i was probably hesitant because I was a dumb kid and I didn't really feel like watching a film that was in a different language. She, she told me that like after five minutes, I was like, look, mom, I don't even realize that the words are on the screen. Like I don't even realize that I'm reading words on a screen, you know, while audio was playing in the background. 
It's just like I'm watching any other movie. So this movie obviously has a personal... I have I have like a personal attachment to this movie is what I'm saying. And if this can kind of attach me to foreign film and this ocean of ideas and cinema that so many people are not exposed to for just a plethora of different reasons, I'm hoping that you will take, you know, the opportunity to see this movie and test yourself and see if you, you like, you know, foreign films as much as I do or as anybody does. It's so worth it. It really is. I think this one is a very good gateway to get people interested in foreign film because, again, it's a combination of two very interesting subjects. You have history, like real things that happened, and you also have the fable context, so the historical context and then the fable context. And just about everybody, not everybody remembers World War II because not everyone lived during that period. A lot of us have to count on historians retelling and maybe our grandparents telling what happened during those just terrible times, those inconceivably horrific historical times. But those horrors stick with us, even though we may have not lived through that. Just like, you know, the fables that we read as children, the fables that were read to us as children, those stick with us. Those cautionary tales, those stick with us just as much as the history does. So it's familiar. It's familiar, but it's also foreign. And that goes back to that whole juxtaposition thing that I was talking about. The comparison of two very different things together, but they're still related somehow. It's such a poignant and eloquent and important work of art I think so that is what this movie is to me I would highly recommend it as a gateway foreign film if you're nervous about checking out foreign films or if you love foreign films and you've just never seen this please or if you're just anybody even if you don't like movies check this one out it's just a good movie all around so in conclusion much in the same way these cautionary fairy tales stick with us, much in the same way the horrors of history stick with us, Pan's labyrinth leaves a mark on whomever watches and understands the vulgar reality behind the symbolic and intertextual imagery on the screen. That is why this movie is worth checking out. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Popcorn Chalk. We are on Spotify Anchor, which is where we publish everything immediately, and then it gets distributed to all these other places. So we're on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts. Like us and follow us on Spotify. Follow us on Anchor. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. And we're also on like five different platforms. If you want to learn about that, visit www.dailyeasternews.com. That's where all of our information is. And that's where our podcasts get published first. Well, after Anchor, of course. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you guys next time on Popcorn Talk.